Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett. Today, we're going to have a fun episode, and we're just going to talk about some uh tech trivia, a little bit of uh, news here and there, and just some various uh, various tech things that we think you all will find interesting. And Rochelle, like always, I find all of this uh, very interesting, and I feel like I'm learning new stuff just uh, just sort of reading about the questions. So I'm excited to have this, uh, have this talk today. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, as I was starting to find these things for this, I almost always find myself amazed by what's here. So my first one is we have always talked about these little anom anomalies that happen in tech. So the word that became the the buzzword in, in tech was what when something goes wrong, the word bug. You know, mm -hmm. there's a bug in the program or there's a bug in it. So how did that happen, Drew? How did bug be, the word bug became become the buzzword for something goes that goes wrong in tech? Yeah, so it has a, a an actually very interesting history. I remember when I first heard that word, I was like, oh, that's a very good description because I think of a bug as like a little gremlin or something in a computer going crazy. Uh, but what people usually mean is that, you know, the code itself is crazy, not that there's actually a bug in there. However, it first came around because there was an actual bug in a computer that uh, Grace Hopper was working on, which uh, she's an early uh computing pioneer and uh there was a bug like an actual moth in one of the computers that was uh throwing things off and uh it, it's just sort of like a very cool uh start to that and yeah. also like you also sort of think about like i don't know like could a if a moth right now you know a moth can't even really get into our computers right now that's very hard to do but back in the uh 60s and 70s you know these computers were giant and like a moth could truly like wreak havoc inside of one thing inside of a, a big computer, you know, knocking over those, what do they call it? The, uh, all the little computer pieces on the circuit board, you know, they're not, they weren't as microscopic as they are now. They were pretty big and a moth could easily wreck those. Uh, what I didn't know is that uh, Thomas Edison actually used the term bug talking about some of his technologies uh, in the, I guess that was the 1800s, <laughs> forever ago. And it, like that sort of fits as well. And, you know, that was the time before computers, but, you know, bugs fit everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing where we get these terms from and not very many of us go back and look for the history of these words and where they came from. But uh, it's very appropriate to use the word bug to describe something goes wrong in technology. There's a yeah. bug in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like a physical bug? Well, originally, yes, it was a physical bug. Nowadays, not, 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 not so, so much. much. <laughs> so much. And and that that leads me to think about, you know, all these different terms that we we come to use. Um, you know, and one of the interesting ones, uh, you know, so now we we're hearing a Bitcoin everywhere, you know, so it's everywhere. And, and and we don't often stop to think about where these terms come from and who who founded these terms. So um, who founded Bitcoin? Is that uh, like Santa Claus? Is it like one of those new terms? Uh, is that a person? Is it uh, 
is it a group where did bitcoin come from drew yeah so you know like it could very well be santa claus we have as much proof that it's santa claus as it is anyone else so that's a, a good analogy uh i find this one incredibly interesting because the bitcoin was invented by a person with i believe it's a no, not a known pseudonym but i believe the everyone believes it's a pseudonym uh satoshi nakamoto which was just a name of someone a name someone used in a news group while they were or a mailing list while they were like sort of hashing out what bitcoin should be uh i think the general thought is satoshi nakamoto is not a real person uh that he probably is uh you know that's not their real name there have been several uh I would say unsuccessful unmaskings where people try to figure out who Satoshi Nakamoto actually is, but no one's really been able to figure it out. And sort of one of the reasons why people want to know is because Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever that really is, is now super rich with all of those initial Bitcoins. Uh, you know, he was able to get a ton of Bitcoins. And the theory is, is that he has multiple Bitcoin wallets very likely just holding on to all of this cryptocurrency, which 15 years ago, it was worthless, or not worthless, but not worth really any money. But because Bitcoin took off, like, so, I mean, it really came on with a rage, what was that, maybe five or six years ago, maybe even 10 years ago now. And the price went up and up and up and up and up. Uh, people were getting rich, people were dumping money in, and then it crashed down. And it's, I think it's still hidden mostly upwards. I haven't really looked lately, but uh, it's not quite as as high up there as it used to be. Uh, I have a theory about who it is. I hope this is true, but I have no proof to back it up. Uh, Rochelle, do you have any thoughts on who you think it might be? I think it's Santa Claus. <laughs> you, you, you are just as likely right as I am with mine. But I want to say it was, my guess is it's Linus Torvalds. And the reason is Linus Torvald, famous creator of Linux, free operating system, uh, super smart uh, computer scientist from uh, one of those Norwegian places. I don't, I don't exactly know where he's from. Uh, but one of the things he did shortly before Bitcoin became a thing was he invented uh, Git, which is a source control system. Uh, and one of the primary like components of Git is doing this SHA uh, hashing, uh, which is taking something that you know and converting it to something that you don't know or that you know and can't reproduce. And that's how Bitcoin works is they take these, uh, there's a lot of hashing of these giant numbers that then make the blockchain. I'm probably explaining it horribly because I don't totally understand it. So my explanations are going to be not so great. But I have a theory is that when he was doing Git, he sort of saw the value of this one-way hashing with SHA-256 and SHA-512 algorithms and thought, what if I could do this as a way to make you know, a cryptocurrency using all these same concepts that I use to make Git this open source product? But if he were to have done that as himself, like as Linus Torvalds, Bitcoin wouldn't really be Bitcoin. Bitcoin would be Linux currency. Like, I don't think that he could decouple his name uh, from something like Bitcoin. So my probably incorrect prediction is that he is Satoshi Nakamoto, but did not want anything related to Bitcoin tied to himself. 
you know, one, because of Linux, two, because if it did take off, he probably don't want people knocking on his door asking for money or targeting targeting him to try and get these things. So having him having doing that as a anonymous person makes it a lot safer for him. I have no proof to back this up whatsoever, but that is my outlandish theory is that he is the one that did all this. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I think you're so brilliant because of things like this. But I also think that a lot of these these naming things out there, you know, if you go back and think about the early names of Facebook or Google or any of these other things, you know, yeah. you know, it makes you want to scratch your head, you know, like who, who thought of these things, you know, like, so yes, I mean, why not, you know, why not that, but, yes. but as we move on, um, so another one of these head scratchers are, you know, Apple, you know, so today when you think of Apple, you know, it's so perfect that their logo coincides with their products, right? So it's mm-hmm. beautiful, right? It's absolutely beautiful. But it wasn't always that way, Drew. Yes. So uh, when you think about the logo and the evolution of the logo, um, very interesting, Drew. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I did not know this before uh, researching for this uh, podcast with the the links that you sent over. When I think of like the, when I think of an early Apple icon i think of the rainbow apple with the bite taken out like that's i assume that was the one that they started off with but they actually started off with this one uh in 1976 that looks like i can't even describe it it looks like an old-timey like uh tavern sign (laughs) it's it's very interesting uh and the apple logo i also find that very interesting because it's first off it's generic right it's just a, a fruit apple and when they were initially getting their trademark, one of the things that they ran into was that Apple was already trademarked by the Beatles because the Beatles record record label was literally Apple Music. And, yeah. uh, you know, Apple, a computing company at the time was like, look, we just want it for computers. We're not going to dip into the music industry like you all keep that. Nobody will ever, you know, nobody will know that nobody. Will, we're not tricking anybody. And then uh, fast forward. 40 years and Apple music is huge. And Apple is like a giant music retailer, if not the biggest music retailer, uh, starting with iTunes uh, as sort of like the back end for their iPod product. And then sort of continuing into Apple music, like they sort of did the Beatles dirty. I think like it is I, Apple music is definitely computer company, Apple now, not Beatles album. <laughs> I mean, I guess it says, who has the most money, right? So if you get the most money, you can have anything you want, right? And so, yeah. you know, Apple now owns Apple and anything that's Apple, you know, gets to be contentious and you have to go to court to say whether you can have the right to say anything about Apple yeah. in that way. But yeah, the and logo itself is now really the Apple with the little bite bitten out of it. You know, it used to be some contentious about whether there was a worm coming out of the Apple. <laughs> anyway. Ooh, that yeah. could be like one of those uh, alternate uh, world things. I sort of imagine a, a worm coming out of it as well. But then I'm like, was that actually Apple or was that something else? And their logo, I feel like it's gotten a little more boring lately. Like I really like that rainbow color Apple. Like that that makes me think Apple computing versus sort of the, you know, now it's just like a matte gray Apple icon, which I guess goes like hand in hand with what they put on the computer. But that rainbow apple looked super cool. And I'm I'm sort of sad that they don't keep that going. I think one of the things that's really interesting about Apple is this new iPhone, that titanium 
titanium, Apple, mm-hmm. iPhone, they have really linked themselves to that that kind of titanium titanium thing a lot. They have moved to that more. They've come and gone with that. So I do think that's in their, you know, their their marketing. You know, to think in that that kind of thing. But you know, who knows? Apple is Apple. They get to do whatever they want to, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. And they got so much money they can. Like it's uh they got a lot of money. Yeah. And 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 they have brand loyalty. I am an Apple loyally. I mean, there's no other product I would buy. I mean, they'd have to really go off the skids for me to go to another <laughs> another product. You know, I am an Apple enthusiast. I, I love them yeah. in every way possible. What what do you think about their new phones? I know they've gotten some criticism over at least the latest generation just sort of being a uh you know, a rehashing of the last one, but I don't, at the same time, I don't really know what the phones are missing. So it's hard for me to say. You know, I think each time they come out with the phone, I mean, so the phone market has become so competitive, right? So Samsung and Google and all these other, I mean, I think all of them are chasing the Apple iPhone market. The problem just is is Apple has such a entrenched uh, phone, you know, you know, group of people who believe in that phone you know, every time Apple comes out with a phone, they're fixing something that they didn't have in the phone before. They're creating a new set of features. So if you look at the iPhone 14, they improved on the camera, right? They keep improving on the camera. And then it's the battery. And, you know, it, you know, it keep going and going and going. You know, like, what can they come up with next? You know, and I think we had talked about this in our podcast some time ago. You know, do you really need a new phone? You know, the answer probably is no. You know, the phone that you have, you know, your flip phone probably could do everything you still need it to do. Yeah. You know, but the the key in what they're selling is, you know, what's new, great and better. I think the key to new technology is security. Can you be safer? You know, I think one of the things that, you know, these phone manufacturers need to think about is can you prevent viruses and 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 ransomware and all these things can you prevent this on your device that's what they need to be selling and making in a phone not can you take great phone can you take great pictures with your phone or you know whatever but can you make me safer online that's what it should be trying to do in these new phones that's in my opinion okay absolutely we need to move on okay drew this is new so i want to know how many people actually knew or heard of emv Right. I had heard, you know, so I sit on uh, on a board for my my local credit union. So, you know, like I had heard this term vaguely in some of the literature they put out. But when I was in Seattle recently, I really they talk a lot about banking in Seattle, specifically in the credit union market. So I had not heard this term. Had you EMV? Had you heard this term, Drew? No, I had not. And I'm still not exactly sure what it refers to. It's uh, It seems very confusing. <laughs> so EMV is Europay, MasterCard, and Visa. So, so these three companies have got in bed and really have taken over the security market of credit cards. So Drew, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about what this stands for. And then I want you to talk to us about this. So EMV, and this is from NerdWallet. So I'm going to read you a little bit. So EMV stands for Europay, MasterCard, and Visa. And it's a technology and payment system that's embedded in the computer chips that's on our credit cards and our debit cards. So Drew, I want to ask you this. So with this new technology, where do you see this going for us? 
You know, it's a good question. And I don't, I honestly don't think it's probably going to stay with the cards. Like when I'm out and about, which is not super often, but uh, it, it happens occasionally. Like I really see, I see less and less people pl paying for things with a credit card. I do see more and more people paying with tap your phone. Like, in fact, I would say like uh, six times yeah. out of 10, if I'm behind somebody, they're paying with their phone and not pulling out a credit card, uh, which is, I think, great. And I think uh, a phone is probably a better way to go versus these old credit cards, because, I mean, a credit card is just sort of a way to identify yourself between a merchant and your credit company, which your phone can, I think, do like much better and much more securely. Uh, so I don't know that something like that is going to exist for too much longer. Like, I think credit cards will always exist and having these chips definitely makes them a little bit more secure. Uh, but it's not the, I don't think it's the endpoint. Like, I think the endpoint is probably going to be phones or some other like easy to use device that is not like this, you know, piece of plastic that they have to mail to you with like, you know, a magnetic strip and a tiny, tiny uh you know, chip on there. Uh, what is it, a little chip that has, uh, I forget what the technology is called, but it's like powered by uh, uh, contact with the card reader. So it's like a tiny little computer that just sort of sort of resembles a boot up when you stick it into one of these slots or press it against a card reader. Uh, like, why not just use the phone? Like, phone seems like a, a much better technology, at least to me on that. Um, one thing I found very interesting, I went to lunch with some students uh, a couple months ago, and they were all using their like university pay cards to uh, buy their lunches. And they actually like give their phone to the waitress to go back and like tap it for them. And I, that was like the craziest thing I had ever seen is people just saying like, I need to pay for this. Uh, here you go. Take my phone back to uh, <laughs> to the kitchen or... and tap it, tap it on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but like it was like second nature to them. And I don't know, I feel very protective about my phone. I don't really want to be handing it to strangers to... But how is that different than handing your credit card to strangers? It's it's not. And it's probably more secure because uh, I'll know exactly what they did with the phone versus there's really no way for me to tell what they did on the credit card until a bill comes in. So, you know, that that's a great point. Yeah. And I think that the tap concept is where they're this really going is that tap concept the the difference is so originally the tap concept prevented the vendor from doing charging you the debit so debit is cheaper for the vendor right so mm -hmm. they don't get a fee but if you tap and originally tap did not allow them to get it went directly to credit right so they didn't get the fee yeah. so that's what the difference is with this emv is now that it it takes a a portion of the fee out so that uh, you're being charged your the vendor is getting a fee from you versus where with the credit transaction they don't get a fee so i think there, there, there's 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 always a gotcha for the consumer in this and everything that there is there's a gotcha for the consumer so i do think your point is right that this this is probably not going to have a long life but you can bet that anytime there's money involved the consumer is always at risk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Drew. So I have a question for you. So a long time ago, there was, I've been pawned. There is Trustpilot. And I can't tell you how many of these things out here to tell you about viruses when you've been caught from a virus. 
But mm -hmm. on average, Drew, how many viruses are there? And how do you determine if you've been caught by a virus now? Oh, yeah. So it, it's hard. So there are, I mean, there's literally probably billions of viruses now. I think the number I read for like how many come up a day are roughly half a million, 450,000. Uh, okay. Yeah, 400, <laughs> which seems uh, insane. Like that is a lot of new viruses every day. Like, okay. <laughs> and luckily, if you're following best practices and if you're keeping your systems up to date, that's going to keep you clear of most of that stuff. Like, you know, if uh, if you're not keeping your stuff up to date, that's when things really like go bad and will go bad without you even having to do anything. Like there's a security researcher, Steve Gibson, and he calls it, I think he calls it like internet virus radiation where these viruses spread and they never get extinguished. So there's just this low level like radiation of worm and virus activity going on on the internet just at all times. And if you were to bring up just say a, an empty server on your home IP address, within seconds to minutes, you're going to have people automatically trying to attack it and get in. Like it doesn't, I mean, you could power it up, sit there. And then if you've got the right logs up, you can see people trying to, uh, you know, run viruses on your system. And it's, it's crazy because it's it seems completely random, but there's so many computers and so much computing power doing a constant scan of the Internet doesn't really take that long nowadays. Like for better or worse, you know, you can reach anywhere in the world on a you know medium sized system and just start trying to get in with all of these different viruses uh, with, you know, little to no startup costs. And it would be nice if they went away, but they just never do. Because they constantly find, you know, they may scan 200,000 computers and only find five active, but that's five more that are now going to send out another 200,000 message, you know, scan another 200,000 and that's going to find five more and it just goes on and on and on. And it's really hard to kill that internet radiation without like full support from the uh, uh, ISPs, which are, I think, the only people that could uh, that could block that. That's crazy. So yeah. Yeah. I think that that's just really frightening just to think that we are that susceptible to viruses and that people are out there cooking up viruses new every day, Drew. Yeah. Yeah. And like when people tell me like, oh, well, you know, I don't keep my system up to date, but you know, I'm not, I don't download suspicious stuff. It's like, well, you probably are downloading. Everybody accidentally downloads something suspicious and you don't even have to do that. Like you get on a Wi-Fi access point, maybe that's a little more public than you're used to. And all of a sudden everything can get at you and uh, you will be, you will be pwned or your computer will be pwned. And a lot of times what they do too is, you know, maybe they're not going to wipe your disc or, you know, send you ransomware. They may want to do it in a non-obtrusive way so they can just use your computer to do other things, right? Uh, if somebody wants to do something illegal, instead of coming from their computer, they can connect to your computer and have your computer do the illegal thing. And then that's going to be much harder for law enforcement to track down. Absolutely. So they, uh, the moral of this story is to keep your systems updated as often as you can uh, and and stay away from downloading things you do not need unnecessarily. Yes. Yes. And uh, I think we are about at time today. So we will revisit this in our next meeting or not our next meeting our next podcast and uh continue these sort of fun new talks i'm, I'm looking forward to it 
And uh, thank you to all of our listeners for joining in on this fun one today. Uh, feel free to email us at imminentteachnology at gmail.com with any thoughts or questions. Thank you.